not like um, for other people where you read something and you're, you're, you can say, oh, okay, I get it. First of all, that information is extremely complex, and it takes time to, to, to put it into your, your filing system and your brain and then to be able to retrieve it when you need to under pressure and actually be able to utilize it or utilize it properly is, is a, a really complex skill. Hello and welcome to another episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at Windsor Law. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And this week we're calling our episode Catch-22, No Capacity, No Lawyer. And Julie has a really great conversation with SRL Judy Gayton. Yes, Judy Gayton lives in Medicine Hat, Alberta. She suffered a head injury in a domestic assault in 2005 and following some subsequent treatment for her head injury with neurotoxins, she then suffered a stroke. So Judy filed two lawsuits, one against the person who assaulted her and the other was a medical malpractice claim against the doctors who treated her. As someone with a brain injury, she never imagined she would have to represent herself in these claims. And in addition, she lives on what's called Assured Income for the Severely Handicapped, or ASH, in Alberta. Now, just for the record, NSROP does not take any view on the merit of Judy's actions. But our interest is in ensuring that as a participant in our justice system, she is treated fairly. And that's really going to be the subject of our conversation today. So Legal Aid Alberta initially supported Judy, having assessed both of her claims as having merit, but ended its support for the medical malpractice case. And it was obviously very difficult to find a local lawyer with the expertise necessary who would work at legal aid rates and with a client with a brain injury. So Judy was left alone to either continue or abandon her claim. What happened next was that to Judy's great relief in 2014, the Alberta Queen's Bench recognized she was a litigant without the, quote, capacity to handle her own case under the Adult Guardianship Act. This meant that she needed a litigation representative, as it's called in the legislation, to assist her. But again, the problem was finding someone who would do this. The court appointed someone for a short period, whom Judy had to pay in part herself. Funds ran out again, and she found herself again on her own. At this point, the defense in the medical malpractice case, which was represented by several counsel, pounced. At a case conference, the defense side asked the case management judge to allow Judy's case to go to trial despite the fact that she had no lawyer. The judge agreed, so Judy went alone to trial in early December 2016, and her case was dismissed in less than 15 minutes. I reached Judy for this conversation at her home this past July. Hi, Judy. It's Julie McFarlane calling. How are you? I'm good today. How are you, Julie? Good, good. So I'm really, really excited to talk to you today and give you a chance to tell some of the story of your experience. You're 
dreadful experience, but I think an ex- a story that really needs to be told so people understand it. So you and I first connected way back in the fall of 2016. Feels like a long time ago now. And when I heard from you, which was on the email, you had just been designated, Judy, under the Alberta Adult Guardianship Act as, quote, uncom- incompetent or without capacity to conduct your own litigation because you have a brain injury. And you were, I remember, you know, very relieved to be so designated because you certainly felt like you couldn't do this alone, that you would need somebody to represent you. But then to your horror, no lawyer took your case and you were left to fend for yourself. And when I got that first email, I remember thinking, no, that this cannot be happening. But it did. And you went on to stand up in court alone, despite that designation, without a lawyer, and of course you lost. So could you begin, Judy, just by talking a bit about the impact of finding yourself caught in what's almost a Kafka-esque story here, where you couldn't represent yourself because you were designated as without capacity, yet nobody stepped forward to represent you? Yeah, it's hard to put that into words um, because I think I was in a, a state of shock for for so for so long, and I kind of came down to for me that the justice system stole eight years of my life that I can never get back. I, I spent every penny I had to spare, and the mental, emotional, and physical toll that it took on me um, to try to shine a light on that the fact that brain injury survivors are being drugged with neurotoxins that have been known for 40 years to cause brain injury and secure uh, justice for my own injuries um, was pretty much a complete and utter waste of time. Because you needed somebody to bring the case forward for you as somebody who is obviously not always able every day to conduct a complex piece of litigation all on your own correct? Yes, that's correct. You know, I have always, throughout the time that we have got to know one another a little bit, um, I have always been just amazed by how determined you have been to try to see this through, which now I understand you feel was probably a waste of your time and energy. But I know from walking through some of this with you, you've tried everything you could possibly think of to help yourself. Uh, and, you know, I know you've tried to cope with this alone, tried to put documents together, tried to communicate with the court, and even tried to stand up and represent yourself in court. Um, can you say a little bit, Judy, so people understand just how many different places you looked for help but got none? Oh, goodness. Um I, 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 first of all, I'd like to say that there's not much available in Alberta at all. You're from Ontario. And ultimately, um, well, obviously you go through all the, the usual suspects, legal aid, um, and then it became eventually, only in the last couple of years, um, a legal guidance center here that for some reason no nobody would help me here in my own local city. I was like sort of last minute able to get some assistance from Calgary Legal Guidance Center, which actually 
they they ended up working quite hard um, to, to to put a pro bono uh, request out, and they managed to do that. So, Judy, you were the subject of a lot of media and public attention last December because the CBC did a number of stories on your experience in the Alberta Queen's Bench, and your case was also discussed in detail at the National Action Committee on Access to Justice. Now, I think that this type of attention um, is in some ways a double-edged sword for you. It's great to get people who pay attention to the huge lacuna in justice services for people in your position, but it's also really frustrating trying to get the system to change. So can you talk a bit about how you felt when you first got some public attention to what had happened to you and then where this leads you now? Mm. Well, the the best advice I think I ever got was your telling me that um, when I went into court to just be honest and say that I couldn't continue without counsel and just sit down and not respond my plan was to not even go because I woke up that morning and I realized it was going to be a pointless exercise in humiliation. And I'm not sure really that I was able to grasp the significance of the publicity because of, I was just so exhausted and um, just, it was surreal what was happening. And I, I don't think I processed it then and may may have not even processed it now, but ultimately because I was um, forced to try and lose that case in 13 minutes after eight years of, of you know, being in court, um, it seemed to me as though no one besides you and I actually cared and there was no evidence that um, manifested itself into some tangible results. So, even though I was grateful for that, and I still am, I'd have to say that it was anticlimactic mm. because nothing happened. I, I still went in there into a court of law that I should never have had to go and stand to, to try that case. Right, and we're still waiting for someone to step forward to help you now. Judy. You know, I've never worked closely with a person with a brain injury before, so I want to say with great humility that you've taught me a great deal in the course of our getting to know one another, not only about the challenges that you face, but about the lack of awareness in our culture about the impact of disability and the million different ways in which people with disabilities are discriminated against day in and day out. I really appreciate everything that you have taught me and I and I want you to say something about what what is the most single most important thing for able-bodied people to understand about people with disabilities it's hard to put it into a single thing but um, one of the things that I was taught in my brain injury rehab was um, and and this panned itself out through through the lived experience just because, you know, somebody appears to be grasping what you're saying, they may be nodding or even saying, okay, it doesn't mean that we understood it the way you meant it, that we understood it at all, that we will remember it, 
or that we can follow through on those instructions. Um, unlike myself, um, I, who was, I, I was diagnosed with an amnesic type of brain injury where I forgot a lot of things from the past. Most people actually retain old information and old learning. But um, like me, uh, most brain injury survivors will struggle with learning new information. So all of that, the stuff that came at me and that I was really forced to try to learn, um, uh, isn't, it's not like um, for other people where you read something and you're, you're, you can say, oh, okay, I get it. First of all, that information is extremely complex and it takes time to, to, to put it into your, your filing system in your brain and then to be able to retrieve it when you need to under pressure and actually be able to utilize it or utilize it properly is, is a, a really complex skill. And most brain injury survivors have a very limited cognitive reserve, so they may seem actually fine to you in one day or even in one minute, and then the next, when they've reached their limit, you can, it's not unusual to maybe witness behaviors like uh, stuttering, staggering, an inability to actually speak, um, to remember, uh, even the name of a common object, um, to start crying, and because um, the environment uh, for brain injury survivor changes like w what's affecting us are things that the, an average brain would screen out like light and sound and more than one person talking and the smells like uh, the movement in a room that the brain is trying to process it perceives differently and it's trying to process that information so there's all kinds of things going on that um, for people with cognitive deficits that other people wouldn't even be aware of. Thank you, Judy. I hope that's something that people in the justice system can hear and can start to learn from. So finally, is there a message you want to put out there to brain injury survivors like yourself who are trying to navigate the court system? Because of course, the reason that people with brain injuries are in the court system is because they have legal issues that relate to their brain injuries. It's yeah. not a coincidence. Um, what what can you tell them after your experience? Well, I, I, I recently stumbled across um, a quote from Abraham Lincoln, um, who I think got it right when he said, um, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. And to that, I would add that uh, a brain injury survivor who represents themselves has a cognitively impaired fool for a lawyer. <laughs> you always retain a sense of humor, Judy. <laughs> well, I just think it's funny. And maybe it is a little bit funny, but it's also quite tragic. Um, I would actually honestly say to any brain injury survivor, don't do it. You, you don't actually have any business being in a court of law where I would have to ultimately say you're not welcome and you haven't been accommodated for um, to try to deal with a, a legal matter of this complexity. But if you do manage to find yourself in a court of law and you're struggling, some of the things that um, I learned recently, you know, after the trial, 
um, what I didn't maybe know then and certainly couldn't have managed on my own is that seek assistance and finding someone to, um, in the disability community or in the legal community to um, advocate for you if at all possible. Don't try to do this alone. Mm. Um, and remember that you do have a legal right to be accommodated as per the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities to um, try to find a human rights lawyer and and, and, and let the Human Rights Commission um, assist you with, an, with a complaint and to try to figure out how to um, lay an emergency complaint to the United Nations Special Rapporteur. And I, I would even add now that um, despite a lot of the warnings not to publicize what's happening to you, that the smartest thing that you could do maybe would be to make sure that people do know what's happening to you. Yes. Yes. And Judy, I really hope that this podcast will mean that more people will know what happened to you and what is happening to many other people. And we know this because we hear from them that the National Self-Represent Litigants Project with brain injuries struggling in the, in the justice system. I really appreciate you being so honest and as ever eloquent with me today. And thank you again, Judy. Thank you, Julie. I really appreciate your time. And I do want to say something to you. Um, I understand and I got a glimpse of the work that you're doing, trying to bring this justice system into the 21st century in alignment with the human rights and UN mandates. And again, so much resistance to change. And I know that you fought long and hard and that you're going through some very difficult things yourself. And I want to thank you, um, and Madame Marini and Dr. Jacobs, um, for what you did to get me through this and beyond what you're doing now, and to make sure that the legal professional profession um, absolutely does know what's going on. Um, and, and to say one last thing to the public is that um, a lot of times we don't recognize how much our lives are governed by the law and how important it is for us to understand that it is the most significant impact um, on our lives, even more so than maybe the healthcare system because it ultimately determines the impact of that on us too. And I just want to say it's been an honor to have your support and to um, know that you're out there working to make this better for all, all of us. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. And I just want there to be more of us and more change. Thank you for your courage. You take care now. You too, Julie. Bye. Judy's story is so powerful and so frustrating. Um, Really, it's infuriating. And I always think that when when we discuss her case. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Uh, uh, there's obviously a lot of things that stand out to me about her experience. But one of the things that always gets to me most is that after all of those years and all of that work, her case was dismissed in less than in 13 minutes. Yeah. 13. I think she timed it. The legal system always builds to a moment. Uh, This is the way that our adversarial system works. And that moment is trial. And, of course, everyone wants to win, but everyone also deserves procedural justice. Mm -hmm. And Judy did not 
get procedural justice here. I just don't understand how you can say someone has no capacity to bring their own case, which is a statement that Judy would thoroughly agree with, and then leave them without a lawyer in a trial. You know, I'm reminded by your reaction of what happened last spring when Judy was given the opportunity to tell her story to the National Action Committee in Vancouver. And in this room filled with judges and lawyers and senior policymakers, after she had told her story, I asked people for their reactions. And the first reaction was from a young woman who stood up and said, this story makes me so mad. I just can't believe our justice system could do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just feels like um, all of these years she's been jerked around over and over again and back and forth. And she's told one thing and then she's told another and she can't rely on the no. information that she's keeps been changing. Given. It keeps changing. And she just, the system should work for everybody and she just can't make it work for her. But, you know, the thing that I've always found quite inspiring about Judy's story and and about her attitude is that despite everything that's happened, she still believes in the importance of the justice system. So in a way, her experience has made her despair, certainly, but it hasn't made her cynical. Mm -hmm. And that's really interesting to me because I hear that from a lot of people, and I think you do too, Dana, who've had really awful experiences in the justice system but they go on believing in it and in the idea of justice and want it to be better. Yeah. And I think that reminds us what an important stewardship we have of this thing called the justice system because people are so heavily invested in it being a better place. So the one last thing about, about Judy is less related to the justice system and more just related to her experience and her expression as somebody with a cognitive disability. And she brings up this really good point that I needed to hear, and I think a lot of people need to hear, that a a person with a cognitive disability or somebody with a brain injury um, may look fine. And we we have heard this before. Judges have said this. And lawyers have said, well, you look fine to me. Um, So they appear fine, but you don't know what's what's going on in their brain, what literally physically is going on in their brain that is making things so difficult for them. Right, right. And I, and I thought she did an amazing job of trying to explain that. And, and we've had, as you say, so many other stories from the original research project and subsequently just like this, where somebody who has a cognitive disability will try to explain that perhaps so they can bring in a McKenzie friend to take notes or simply to ask for, you know, more breaks in the proceedings. And because they don't look different, visibly different to anybody else, they're just dismissed. And, you know, these are just heartbreaking stories. But they're also, I think, for me, as someone who's worked in law schools all my life, a reminder that we just don't train law students um, and we don't support lawyers who may want to work with people who have cognitive disabilities and and, and challenges that make them challenging clients. Mm And, and we have no sophistication on how to work with clients who are going to need more time to process things. They're going to have days when they're not doing so well. They're going to need some kind of flexibility in the procedure. And, you know, if we're going to take seriously 
the fact, and it is a fact, that there are many people with disabilities who are using the legal system, which isn't a coincidence because sometimes, like Judy, this is related to the injuries that they have suffered personally or medically, then we need to think about how we can both offer them real assistance and recognition and also help lawyers to help them effectively. In other news... We don't want to come across as Jillian Hadfield groupies, though we probably do fit that bill, but this week we would like to highlight another piece by the esteemed professor, one that cuts to the chase of the problem of legal system design. Writing on the website Place, which offers news and opinion on inadequate protection of land and property rights worldwide, as well as failures of access to justice, Hadfield says the following, quote, The first step to building better law is to peel away a fundamental fallacy, that the building of legal systems is a task that should be left to legal experts who implement a one-size-fits-all set of institutions. That's wrong. Law and legal systems have to be built on the ground with the people who need them and with laser focus on the ends, not the means. End quote. We agree. NSRLP has been saying this since its inception. Let's make user-centric something more than a buzzword by taking real steps to listen to the public who use the justice system. You can find Hadfield's full article on the webpage for this podcast episode. Also, less in other news and more in jumping off the ivory tower news, we have been getting a terrific positive response to our podcast series. As with all NSRLP projects, we welcome your feedback and comments, as well as suggestions for future episodes. You can write to us at representingyourself at gmail.com. We'd also like to make an appeal for listeners to give us a rating and perhaps write a short review on iTunes. This really helps to boost the visibility of our podcast. If you are enjoying Jumping Off the Ivory Tower, please subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about it too. Finally, this past week has seen announcements from two important leaders in Ontario's legal community that they are stepping down. Rob Lapper, who for almost six years has acted as CEO of the Law Society of Upper Canada, Ontario's professional regulator, has announced that he is leaving the Law Society. Rob has worked on strengthening the Law Society's organizational commitments to access to justice and has often been supportive of the work of the NSRLP. Rob was part of our founding event, the Stakeholder Dialogue, that took place at Windsor Law when the National SRL Study was first released in 2013. We wish Rob all the best in his future projects, and hope that we get the chance to work with him again. Rob isn't the only person announcing a professional change this week. Lauren Sosin has announced that he will stand down as Dean of Osgoode Hall Law School next year, after eight years in that role. Lorne is recognized as a leader in the A to J movement in Canada and a person who garners universal respect. As dean, he has pushed for new clinical initiatives, real engagement with the local community around the university in North York, and for innovations in legal services delivery. We wish him the very best in his next endeavors, and we know he must have some up his sleeve. Now, these announcements can't help but make us speculate. And although we have no information to confirm our suspicions and, of course, are careful not to publish fake news, we can't help wondering if perhaps Rob and Lauren's simultaneous announcements mean that they might just be running away together. 
we will keep you posted on any further developments on that front. As always, you can find links related to our In Other News items on the webpage for our podcast, which can be found at representingyourselfcanada.com slash podcast. So next week's guest on Jumping Off the Ivory Tower will be Lorne Sosson. Speaking of Lorne Sosson, we're proud to say that he is going to talk to us next week on topics ranging from the removal of Justice Robin Camp from the bench to what kind of pro bono service can law students offer to working with SRLs. And we have called this episode, How Far Can a Law School Dean Go?